Hello and welcome to Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I'm your host, Avi Wolf. Today we're going to be talking about a much discussed and much misunderstood state and region of the United States, West Virginia and the region of Appalachia, uh, which I've probably horribly mispronounced, but... <laughs> To that end, I have invited Andrew Donaldson, native of that state, to help us understand what makes this state and its people tick, and perhaps learn to understand it for what it is rather than for what we imagine it to be, either good or bad. Andrew, welcome. Hey, thank you so very much for having me. I really appreciate it. So let's start uh, with your own personal relationship with uh, West Virginia and Appalachia. Give us a little bit of your own background. Well, I was, um, of course, born and raised there. my mom's side of the family goes back in West Virginia to pre-colonial days. Wow. Uh, uh, they were actually there before it was a Virginia. They were there before it was a West Virginia. They were there before there was anybody speaking English besides them, pretty much. Um, then, uh, in fact, the land that they still live on to this day, what I'm always calling up yonder, the original land track for that was signed by James Monroe when he was then the governor of Virginia. Uh, wow. So we, we've been on that mountain one way or the other for 200 odd years give or take um and then it goes beyond past that my my dad's folks came over they were um scott irish kind of folk uh they came over in the 1840s to the 1850s and the mass migrations of that era uh came through new york and then came down and i always kind of wondered i'm like why why did they settle in west virginia until the first time i went to ireland and i'm like oh i get it okay after you know after what the mid-century new york city was like they must have thought they died and went home when they saw all that green and hills you know Right. Uh, so our, our our folks go way way back. Uh, they're they're about as OG as it gets for West Virginia. And then of course I was born there. Uh, my parents were the generation that they they stayed. Their family had been there. It's kind of the long unbroken line. And then uh, I joined the military and became part of the Mountaineer diaspora. We call it. We're kind of all scattered. There's actually more West Virginians outside of West Virginia than there are in West Virginia. Uh, that, that that happens with a lot of diasporas, actually. Uh, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of the payment to get into the club, as I understand it. You got to leave, but um, it's it's definitely a special place for for me because it's it's all my roots and my you know we we, we way overuse the term culture, but uh, it it really is an ingrained part of you when you come from an area like that, especially when you have a lot of history from it. On top of it, my dad was actually a history and social studies teacher. My uncle, my mom's brother, has written. Uh, three historical fiction books based off our family history. There, there, there's always been this sense of history in our family towards West Virginia. So I, I feel that that's a great blessing for me that, you know, not only am I from this unique place, but I've, I've always had kind of a good sense of your place inside of that unique place. And it really gives you an identity, and I've, I've always been very proud of it, and uh, I love talking about it. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it one more time. So... Uh that's a great segue into the next question. Let's say, I don't know, you, you meet someone for lunch or you invite uh, another family over to your house and they're from another part of the country. Um, and maybe they have like a vague, maybe they're a history buff like me. I had the only, Practically the only thing I know about West Virginia's history is the fact that it, because I was a Civil War buff, that it seceded from right. Virginia during the right. Civil War. Or maybe they have some knowledge from uh, contemporary politics, which is maybe less flattering. What would you be the, like, I guess the 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 to the point pitch that you would give them about West Virginia was is and what it isn't. Uh, it was where a lot of folks that didn't really have anywhere else to go went. Um, that's that. There's been kind of three mass migrations into West Virginia historically. There was 
um, the westward colonial expansion when the Appalachian Mountains was the west, you know, not what we think of the west now, the Appalachians was the western barrier to the colonies. Uh, and then they started pushing through Ohio and Kentucky and all that. You know, they thought Kentucky was the far west back then. Uh, so you had that first migration. And then um, after the Civil War, uh, you had a, a large influx of people when, when the coal mining really became the calling card of the state. And then you had all kinds of different people groups uh, pour into the state through the 1870s, through the 1920s and 30s. Um, the northern part of the state had a lot of Eastern European, Italian, that sort of thing. There's actually pockets of southern West Virginia. There was a lot of um, freed slaves came north looking for a better life. So you really had kind of a, a melting pot of people that just didn't have anywhere else to go, and they wound up coming to West Virginia because it was, you know, cheap land. It was remote. A lot of folks that just wanted to be left alone, um, that sort of thing. Uh, and then very famously now, uh, you have a state that is demographically bleeding to death. Um, they are, we're, West Virginia, in the latest uh, data, uh, is the only state in America that grossly lost population by a lot. They lost like 4%. Uh, I forget oh. the exact number, but it, like, if you look at the chart, it's just glaring like, oh my God, they are just so out of step with everybody else. Um, I say demographically bleeding to death, and people kind of look at you like, why do you say that? Well, West Virginia is one of the oldest populations. It's one of the most infirm populations. It's ground zero for the opioid epidemic. So even the young people that we are keeping, we're having, you know, an entire generation wiped out by that. But even among all that, there's a little bit of hope glimmering through of people that are, you know, raised there and left. And then they try to come back and sort of that. And we're, we're kind of right in this weird generational thing right now where, you know, what you were coal mining, uh, that sort of stuff, that's all gone, and no, nobody has any illusions that that's coming back. They, they know, despite what, you know, outside media sometimes, does. we know, they know. Uh, so they, there's very much an identity crisis, and within the next 10 to 12 years, there's going to be a massive generational switch as this older generation uh, passes into history. Uh, so it's, it's very much in the balance right now of what West Virginia is going to be over these next few years. And you see that reflective in the massive political shift in the last 10 to 15 years. And I think you're going to see it in another shift in the next 10 to 15 years going forward. So let's uh, start with the beginning of that process. Uh, sure. You're talking, you're talking about the, uh, the coal mines that everybody knows now that they're right. dead. Yeah. Uh, I remember back in 2016, uh, 2017, uh, after you know the shock of the, the the Trump election, I started taking a look at the started to dig a lot deeper into American history. And one of the things I noticed was that uh, this crisis has been decades in the making. Uh, stuff like automation, uh, automation uh, even before the EPA uh, started oh, yeah. to started to kill jobs, uh, like even in the Eisenhower uh, um, administration. Um, is it so? What exactly was going on here? Is it that just people had? I mean, it's entirely understandable. It happens everywhere that people say, you know, we've had this way of life for like decades on end, where you know coal supplied the country and the world, and we just we can't let go of it. So we want politicians. We basically want politicians to lie to us and tell us we can bring it back somehow, like people uh, living uh, living in the Midwest. Or was it just perhaps they were perhaps they were afraid, you know? If this goes, what do we have left? Yeah, it, and as usual with things like this, it's a lot more nuanced than what you can fit into a, an opinion column or a, a oh, think piece on TV. What, what you had happening was the, the people are very aware, acutely aware, because this is their livelihoods. They know where their bread's buttered. They, they know that it's a problem. 
uh, what you had for decades and decades and decades was you had one party rule in the state of West Virginia, the Democratic Party. West Virginia was, co people don't understand this now because of recent history, West Virginia was the most cobalt blue state in America for 100 years. When I went to register to vote in 1998, when I turned 18, they didn't even ask you which party you were registering for. If I'd asked to register as a Republican, I doubt they'd know how to do it. And I'm not joking. <laughs> like, they just, I believe just, you just didn't. There, there was no such thing. There was people that even if they weren't going to be Democratic Party, they would have just registered as a Republican or as a Democrat because you, if you were a Republican, you'd never get to vote for anything unless, except in a general election, then you'd lose anyway. Like, it's just, that's how deep blue it was. And this was not this long ago. Um, and then it, it rapidly shifted. So you had one party rule. You had a very heavily unionized, uh, which has always been hand-to-hand -hand with the Democratic Party for good and bad. So there was a lot of people invested in the power structure of West Virginia to leave everything as it was, even though it, as it was clearly crumbling out from underneath them to try to hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. So, like, people talk about coal mines now. There's only actually about 15,000 underground coal miners now, and only about half of them actually work underground. Right. Um, whereas Walmart... <laughs> You know, Walmart's the largest private employer. The three largest demographics in West Virginia now uh, are public employees, uh, mostly school teachers and state employees of various kinds, mm -hmm. medical employees, healthcare workers, mm -hmm. and pensioners. What you know, mm -hmm. people call pensioners. You know, uh, retirees, disabled, those sorts of things. Those are the three largest voting groups in West Virginia, um, mm. and two of those three are very traditional Democratic voting groups. Mm -hmm. um, so. It's a weird thing. West Virginia, the other part of this puzzle to kind of talk about the shift from the coal mines. Um, when when the coal mines shut down, this is a very rural, isolated area. McDowell County, West Virginia is now one of the poorest, if not the poorest counties in America. When the mines were gone, you know, people came there for the mines. Um, if you ever if you ever go watch the Anthony Bourdain episode on West Virginia, I think it's one of the best portrayals of the state I've ever seen in my life. He, he got it right. And it's like he said in the documentary, he said, what jobs are all going to go work at Walmart? What are they going to do? There are no jobs. There's nothing else there. And these people, once they lost their jobs, they just don't have the, the fluidity and, and ability to go somewhere else. Of course, there's some pride where a lot of them are just stubborn. It's like, no, this is my home. I'm here thick or thin. And, and folks should respect that to a level, too. Because it's real easy for us to look on a chart and go, oh, well, these people should just move. Well, why would you move if you've lived somewhere 150 years? You know. Right. So there, there's there's that all going on. And it's, and it's a complex thing where you've... And it, it's, it's a very old story. It's just the West Virginia version of it. There was a lot of outside power source structures that took advantage of West Virginia. There was a domestic inside of West Virginia power structure that grew out of that that perpetuated it. And then when the underlying parts of that, the coal mines and all that, disappeared, then the power structure has to find a new reason to exist. And that's the transition that you're seeing. And it's a messy transition. And it's not a, not a pleasant one for the people to watch. But it's not... It's the unique version of West Virginia's story of it, but it's not really unique in human history because we see it often in other people groups. Oh, for sure not. Um, your d discussion of uh, the different uh, people who are you know, stubborn or uh, who they want to stay where they were and entirely understandable um, brings me into uh, a uh, someone we both know, a man named Kevin Williamson, yep. who... Uh, who has uh, published extensively, uh, not just on West Virginia, but also on the general uh, Appalachian region, uh, including a book uh, which I have not read. Uh, and frankly, uh, 
not so sure if I want to ever read anything of his ever again, but uh, <laughs> uh, called The Great White Ghetto, where he talks about all the deep, um, some people would call it dysfunction, I'll just call it problems of people where they, they, they have, uh, where there, there's, a, there's an enormous amount of dependency, uh, welfare dependency, drug dependency, and so forth. And I wonder if you might uh, explain it from your perspective, like what brings us about, how is it that a, 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 an area that it, you mentioned how they're very individualist, but on the other hand, for better or worse, Appalachia also has a, a, a reputation, maybe it's, maybe it's not entirely accurate, of being a very family community oriented uh, area for those communities that exist. What's going on? How is it that it was, it, it cratered so badly? Well, it, um, family and community can be a two-edged sword, okay. and it's one of those messy things where you'll, you'll, you'll find in places, and this is another one of those universal truths, and then you can, you can break it down to, a, to the specific people, groups, and cultures. Um, mm-hmm. People in really hard times find ways to really stick together because that's the only thing they got left. Um, so even in, in what you would call dysfunctional families and broken families, there's still a togetherness where they just become dependent on each other because they don't have anything else. And that can be healthy in a lot of cases. In a lot of cases like uh, dependency, it can be a very unhealthy thing, but it's still a dependency. Mm-hmm. Um, let, me, let me give you an example from my own hometown. I, I just wrote on this because I have it in my mind. Um, when, when you go into my hometown, it's small town, two 3,000 people, give or take, kind of been very static. Um, you go to the courthouse, and then what they did was uh, the day report for the courthouse, that's all the people that are on probation that have to do mandatory drug tests, all this stuff. They've actually had to lease out what used to be the big Heilig Myers furniture store downtown, and that's the day report center. So you've gone from, just in my lifetime, I turned 41 Saturday. I'm not that old. Well, I think I'm not that old. I probably am. Just in... 25 30 years they've gone to where downtown where there was commerce now the main use of that building is day report for the opioid crisis because they just they physically didn't have room to put all the people that are on those sorts of things and the thing that breaks your heart about that um a guy i grew up with is actually the the district judge in fayette county the next county over from mine and that is the worst county in west virginia for opioids right now it's fayette county north west virginia and when i was talking to him last time i was home it was just hard he's just telling me he's like you know he just kind of throws his hand. He's like, what do I do? I got I got both parents coming in at the same time, and I got to send them both away. And then what do you do with the kids with a CPS system that's completely overrun? So in places like West Virginia, you're talking, these family units are not always a traditional family unit. It's a lot of grandparents raising kids. It's a lot of extended family raising kids. So now when you start talking about family units, that's already been broken down into something that's unrecognizable to a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it's so difficult to explain to people um, whether it's a inner city situation or a rural American situation which actually they have a lot more similarities than a lot of people probably want to admit um, which is why probably why Williamson used that terminology Um, people want to disparage them for the dependency but there's also a survivalist instinct that that dependency comes out of It's, it's even though it's destructive in the long run without a further option of anything better to do that's all they've got is that dependency and it becomes this self-feeding thing that does become generational of you know there's pride in there there's stubbornness in there 
but mm-hmm. after so long, when it's all you know, you know, the fish doesn't know it's drinking water anymore, if mm-hmm. it makes sense that way. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, um, to try and elevate this a bit, sure. You mentioned you mentioned um, you mentioned earlier that there do seem to be some signs of hope, some signs of renewal, some signs of re-energizing. Even if, it, as you said, it's messy and complicated and will be painful. Could you perhaps uh, elaborate on that? Yeah, I, I. I love to have. Ho- I like to have hope. I don't like to end things on, or, no, or even continue to. things on a negative uh, uh, side. I do too. Um, there, there's a couple little glimmers of hope going on they they're they're trying to do some criminal justice reform uh again it, it just happened to be in my hometown and a really good local reporter covered it so i jumped all over it and and hijacked it um they're trying these things called drug courts now which is trying to do um outside the judicial system to work in rehabs and things like this for drug offenses but it's also combining the cps element the child protective element so mm-hmm. that these families are actually, they're going through an extrajudicial process to get out of the legal system, but they're doing it in conjunction with the CPS to put their family back together at the exact same time. Mm-hmm. And um, it's small now, but when you have a town of only like two, 3,000 people, if you have four or five families that get put together, that's not, not even statistically, that's not insignificant. Mm-hmm. So it's a small thing, but the idea of, of, of bundling, well, let's change how we're dealing with these, you know, just throwing, we're, we can't even take kids out of homes now because we don't have the system to do it anymore. The jails are full. What are we going to do? So trying to figure out ways to try to put families back together while rehabbing, while doing probation, while trying to get people uh, back to work at the same time as part of that program, not just on, you know, government assistance, but actually having a job as part of getting their children back and these sorts of things. Uh, there, there's a lot of momentum for those programs at the local levels, and and it's small, but you got to take the wins where you can get them when you have a lot of darkness, right? A little bit of light yeah. to start with. Uh, yes. So there's things like that going on. The the other thing that's going on, and there's not really a number for this, but I can I can just hear it from talking to folks. Um, there's a desire for folks to come back. Uh, mm-hmm. I talked to. Um, friend of mine uh, a good example of this and and politically we're complete opposites but I have a lot of respect for uh, my friend Kayla Young uh, came back brought her family back wanted to raise them in West Virginia was running a food truck uh, when COVID hit can't run your Mm -hmm. food truck anymore what do you do she's like well I'm going to run for the House of Delegates and she put her shoes on knocked on every single door and she won and now she's in the House of Delegates and even though I'm politically we disagree on absolutely everything you're going to see more and more of that as I think as this older generation. The like right now, we I was just home uh, about two months ago. I had to go home for a funeral, and I was talking to a, a very good friend of mine who's actually married in my family since then, and he's into real mm-hmm. estate developing now. And he he showed me. He's like, I have a map on my wall where the broadband is. Um, mm. He's like, as soon as kind of like how they used to set things up along the rail line, right? I'm telling you, the rail line and the coal companies, and now it's technology. It's 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 kind of the same story over and over. He's like, I've got the what's called uh, CenturyLink is the is the good provider, and Frontier Communications, which I won't go into it. Folks can <laughs> Google it. They they continually get sued by everybody because they're just it's just not a good company. No, they they've gotten sued for the state of West Virginia. They still owe money from settlements. It's it's just a horrible company. These developers, they literally have a line on the map of like this is where broadband is because. There's these people that this new working remote revolution we're going through. They want to live places like mm-hmm. West Virginia where they have an outdoor lifestyle, a tourism lifestyle, a, 
Um, even people, there's a lot of ecotourism. There's a lot of outdoor stuff, rock climbing. We just, the New River Gorge area is the latest national park in, in America. They just made it a national park. That's right the area I'm from. Uh, it's going to be a tremendous economic boom, but they have a line of wall. He's like, I can't rent out to these companies and these working people because they've got to have broadband. Things like that give me hope because it's like, right. okay, well, broadband is an addiction. We can fix broadband. We can we can get you know we can do something about this and start bringing people in. Uh, and and culturally, there's going to be a shift as this older generation starts to mm-hmm. the older generation that went real hard right the last few elections. Um, that generation will be passing away. They're going to be a lot less resistance to change. I think there's going to be some, we're going to see a new West mm-hmm. Virginia. What's that look like? I don't know, mm-hmm. but I'm excited about oh, it. For and sure. I think we should have, um, we got to live in hope. Speaking of, uh, I was kind of curious if we're already talking about West Virginia society. Um, there, are, there are all sorts of um, like sure. uh, myths about how uh, West Virginians live and the kind of culture. Maybe you can tell us a, a little bit about you know, the, the kind of what what you already told me on Twitter, Appalachia is its own thing. So how is Appalachia its own thing uh, culturally, uh, past and present? Oh, it just is. And anytime you have an isolated area, which uh, Appalachia was for, you know, decades and decades <laughs> and decades, you're going to have some, uh, okay. we'll call it peculiarities. Um you know, I, I've got, I've, I have heard, told, and know of just about every West Virginia Let's joke there is. So we can go down that route if you want to about, you know, how we invented the toothbrush. Let's try the more serious stuff. Be a toothbrush, you and know, we can do all that kind of fun stuff. And you know, yeah, um, culturally, what what happens is when you have a isolated area of people. Again, this is a universal truth too. When you have an isolated uh, group of people, they tend to have an isolated culture. Uh, a very inward culture. Now, there's good parts to that because you usually have, you know, real strong family bonds and and you have a good sense of culture from yourself and a good sense of history, which we certainly have. But it can also be uh, detrimental in some ways because you you don't have that outside perspective on how the wider world works sometimes. And, you know, without knowledge, I'll defer to my father here. I'll just rip him off here, uh, who was an educator in West Virginia for 35 years. Um... And, and he told me all the time, because I'd, I'd ask him every once in a while, he has a wow. tremendous mind for business. He has like 95 cents every dollar he ever spent. You know, he, he's, I was like, what, what, what about, and he just looked at me and he goes, I'm a teacher, man. I, I get the summers off, weekends and holidays. I get to do something that really, really matters, and I get to live here. And he saw it as a calling to stay there. Him and my mom both in the 60s, they took, um, there was a teacher shortage in the 60s, and they took a federal grants to go to school. Because they both grew up dirt. My dad grew up poor, and my mom grew up something that doesn't. The English <laughs> language doesn't have a word for, you know, abuse of poverty. Um, uh, you know, alcoholic father. Uh, she's the ninth of ten kids. Mm-hmm. The the stereotypes of West Virginia. That's what my mom grew up in. I've got pictures of her and a little girl wow. where the buttons on her dresser mate are missing because she's the fourth person to wear it. You know that sort of stuff. You know, barefoot and. You know, they, they had to hunt and kill what they eat because that's all the food they had a lot of the times. Mm-hmm. You know, all the stereotypes of West Virginia, right. that's how my mom grew up. You know, hillbilly. Um, lost their house to eminent domain when they made the lake in my hometown. They moved mm-hmm. back up on the mountain that had been in right. the family for years. Literally ran to the mountain because they didn't have anywhere else to go. Right. You know, so those stereotypes are built in, but then what are you going to do with it? So then we can look back, my generation, my parents is the first generation that for, Mm. since they came to America that didn't grow up in abject poverty. Why is that? And you start asking those 
you know, the higher level questions and the, the kind of existential questions like, okay, why did this generation rise up when all those other generations didn't? And you have the post-World War II boom and you have things like that that obviously played into it in economics. But then mm. you have to start asking yourself like, okay, how do we not drop the torch and not ever go back? Because I see people, friends, people I grew up with that, you know, I left, they didn't. And then I, I'm back and forth a lot mm. now and I will move back permanently at some point, I have no doubt. You know, how do you avoid falling into the opioid trap or the poverty trap again? Because if you get in there, it sure looks like there's generational patterns before you get out again. And I was like, do we want our family to spend another 150 years in poverty like they did before us? And it it weighs on you. It's like, no. So as somebody who does political and cultural commentary like I do and like you do, that's when you start looking. It's like, okay, how do we not drop the torch? How do we not only bring up the people that are struggling? How do we make sure that the future generations, we don't right. go backwards and we hold um, on to the little bit so of progress we are starting to make? You mentioned how to not drop the torch. You mentioned the, the opioid epidemic. Uh, one of the things, again, that just hit the, I mean, nowadays for some reason it's dropped off the map, maybe because of COVID. I hope it comes back again. Uh, I was absolutely gobsmacked at the number of Americans who are dying every year to stuff like fentanyl or fentanyl-laced drugs. Uh, in addition to, I hope yes. the people who are who, who who made this stuff end up in prison, or maybe worse. Um, uh, it, are there any ideas or methods or approaches that have helped either prevent people from ending up in this kind of level of dependency or somehow breaking out of it? Yeah, there is. Um, there's actually a, a great piece in a, a publication called 100 Days in Appalachia, which has been running for a while now because it's been... It's, mm-hmm. And uh, a lady named Ariana Velasquez wrote it, and she used a phrase that I heard a lot growing up, and she mm-hmm. used it as the, the hinge to her piece. said, getting above your raising. Um, you know, you grow crops, you raise kids. You know, get above your raising. Just mm-hmm. because you're raised away doesn't mean that you have to be that way. Mm-hmm. And in, in this piece, she was talking about a grandmother. And I think back to my own mother, her mom, mm-hmm. who has 10 kids, an alcoholic, abusive husband, you know, poor as dirt. That's what she always told them. Get above your raising. Mm-hmm. Like, you, just because you're raised one way, that's not your destiny. And almost all of her kids, all, all of them that wanted to go to college went. Mm-hmm. Most of them went to college. All of them had pretty successful careers. All of them really became... Uh, successful people by any measure you know none of them are rich or famous or anything like that but they all have families and they all had lives and that's how they were preached some of this is just you know you can't you can't make a policy for guts and grits and brawn but that's what raised a lot of these people out of out of that was that get above your raising thing the problem now is with something like opioids you don't have anybody with a level Mm -hmm. enough head left when they're when they're in an addiction cycle that mm-hmm. can preach that message with enough moral authority that it sticks. You you can be dirt poor and have a lot of respect. If if you've got an addiction yeah, yeah. problem, it's hard for people to respect you. You understand the difference I'm getting at there? Um, and, and there's not really a policy from the government or anybody else that's going to fix that. Cultural problems have to have cultural fixes. I wish I had a great soundbite on how to fix my own culture. I don't. I just know it's going to take a lot of work, and it's going to take a lot of, frankly, you know, what's missing in a lot of this is give a damn. 
it's just going to take a whole lot of give a damn of people wanting to dig in and work. And I, I think it will happen because at some point the tragedy gets so bad that the wave just has to crest and people go enough. And I, I think we're starting to get there in some meaningful I ways hope so. uh, with and, this uh, oncoming generation of folks. Speaking of uh, ways in which yeah, me you know, too. normal, ordinary people rise up, uh, I wanted to ask you about uh, the blog that, or the platform, really, that you've set up uh, with a number of other people and for which I myself have written a number of, uh, number of times, Ordinary Times. What gave you the idea for this thing? I mean, there are a lot of blogs out there. Yes. There are a lot of platforms out there, but there's something about this setup that's unique. It feels like it's written by and for ordinary average Americans, not a specifically marketed niche, uh, uh, especially people from like the upper middle class or people from political politics, just ordinary folks sitting around. Did you, you just get up one day and say, you know what, we're missing that. Let's set that up. Uh, the guy, the folks that started it surely did. And, and if you go back and, and first of all, it's not mine for people that don't, you know this, but the people that are listening, Ordinary Time's been around a long really? time. They actually go back. The website's been around for 13 years now in its present form. But it goes back to the old um, early blogging list server kind of days of the Internet. It goes all the way back to that. Uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen is what it was originally called. Um, then when they did the website, they wanted to be a little more inclusive, so they changed the name and they batted some things around and, and came up with Ordinary Times. But Ordinary Times, the website as it exists now, has been around about 13 years now. Uh, but those original folks, go go look at who, who did some of that writing. And I'm not going to name drop folks, but you're talking about people that work at Forbes now. You're talking about there's two people on the New York Times uh, editorial board right now that had a cup of coffee with Ordinary Times. There's uh, names you will recognize. Um, it's always been a place in the, those early guys, and I'm, I'm really blessed because the two or three uh, editors-in-chief before Will, who I work with now, Will Truman, um, the Burt Lycos and the, and the Todd Kellys, they, they've been absolutely open books for me to reach out to. So when I came along, it was very much an understanding that I'm a steward of this thing that already exists, but it fits really well into my own, you know, ethos and how I like to conduct myself and how I like to do things anyway of get the best, you know, I don't, I, I'll just give you an example. I was talking to a writer today that's writing for us for the very first time, getting ready to publish her first piece, and they always ask that same question every write. well, what should I write about? And because and they mean topically, do I write politics? Do I write a movie review? And I, and I tell them the same answer every time, and it served us really well. I was like, what are you excited about mm. writing about? And if you're not excited, what are you mad about writing? Or what's really got you passionate? That's what I want you mm. to write about. And they're like, well, is it? I was like, no, 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 no. Mm. I don't care. I want you to do good mm. writing. We'll find a place to platform it. But what? Because I want your best. I don't want your best trying to be whatever you think it ought to be. And and we're just really, really blessed with some really, really talented people because it turns out there's a lot of talented people that maybe write other ways or even people that write for a living, but they have a passion for um, certain things. Uh, I, I think about our buddy Alex Parker. He, occasionally he's been writing uh, Batman stuff for us. He has a day job. He's he's. Well, I, I don't want to get into it. Um, he, he's got you know quite a catalog of batman stuff but that's why he comes back to us so he can write about batman and it's excellent excellent stuff take you for example all the writing yeah, you've done i think true. the biggest thing yeah, you've I'll ever published three. for us was over a video game uh, you know on 
so but it's but if I went to a normal publication and said hey I, I've got a guy that's going to write a piece on Diablo 3 and it's going to be the biggest thing we've done in years they'd laugh at me you know and, but it because there were but there was people that wanted to read it and you can't you can chase trends and things like that and sometimes it works and sometimes it don't so what we do is and we're we're blessed mm-hmm. with the platform to be able to do it is we just worry about doing good work and and getting those stories out of people that they're passionate about because as long as you're doing that you're going to have a chance to hit something that connects with other people it's that that thing you're talking about we just um we had mm-hmm. a writer just write a piece about the middle brow and i don't know if we're middle brow because uh, that's kind of nebulous, but it's it's like what you said. It's just if you can relate to people, there's a great hunger in media uh, worldwide, not just in America, for real, not right, not affirming. They just want real. And I tell our writers all the time working with us, like write. I I wrote about a TV show mm. that's been off the air for almost ten years the other day, just on a lark. I got email after email after email from people, you know, stuff like that. And it sounds silly, but. If you're going to talk culture and politics, right. you got to start with what people want to talk about. And so we encourage our writers to start there. And then that's kind of been the, the ethos of the website of, well, if it's good, we'll take it. Because there's going to be somebody that wants to hear it. it. It wasn't so much a plan as it is, let's get the best out of these people. And like any other management, you know, my management philosophy has always been, give me good people and then we can work the rest of it out. If you start with bad people but talent, you're just going to, bash your head in the whole time we're blessed with really great people and i and i hope people will check out ordinary-times.com uh they're great people and that means they tell great stories in a relatable well, way that all people it, can you understand have certainly sold to. the website uh, very well so i thought i might end off uh, our discussion the question a person wants to come and visit the state has maybe a sure. week or two where do you suggest they go uh and who do you suggest they talk to <laughs> Oh, uh, it, it Let's depends on two things they want to do. Are they an outdoor person or are they an indoor person? Uh, if you're an outdoor person, uh, you're going to be in heaven. Uh, I already mentioned the New River Gorge is the new national park. Uh, you can you can start in, in the southern part of West Virginia. You could spend all your time just there rock climbing, whitewater rafting, all that kind of fun stuff. Wintertime, there's, there's two different very large ski resorts. Um, so for all four seasons, you're covered if you want to do outdoor stuff. Um, I, I always recommend to people, uh, if you fly in, rent a car, if you drive in, bring your car, you just have to drive some of the, some of the best driving roads, scenery, especially in the fall when the leaves turn. Um, I've been all over the world. My happy place is driving us route 60 from Charleston to, to white sulfur Springs curves, uh, you know, 290 degree curves on the mountains, curvy roads. I drive way too fast and straighten the roads. I'm sorry, I just do. Um, but the people, um, there, there, there's three different parts of the state. There's um, Morgantown up north, which is WVU. It's a college town. You have all the history in the eastern panhandle and kind of mm. the D.C. suburbs, Harper's Ferry, John Brown, all that stuff's out there. You have the, the what we call the valley, the capital city of Charleston. And then you have this great middle section that is... Um, an unknown area unless you physically go there. Um, you know, in Europe, they always talk about walking tours or driving tours or bus tours. I, I would recommend people take West Virginia as a driving tour. You know, start in those cities because they're great cities. Charleston, they've really done a good job rebuilding the downtown area. 
but you got to drive out into these these communities and just see them because there's just no way to explain to you what a you know a town that has buildings that have been abandoned longer than when they were built in their 120 year old buildings those sorts of things you just have to see them uh driving central and southern west virginia i, I always recommend people just drive it like when i was in europe go to the hot bonhoff get off the train start walking your way out right west virginia drive your way into the middle of it go to these places the 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 mcdowell counties the logans the elkins up in the northern part of the state and just start talking to these folks they they will they'll have that moment of oh you're an outsider but if you're open to it um they'll very definitely wait and if nothing else man tell them to call me because we'll host you up yonder there's food every friday night at a minimum if not more often uh you're probably related some way or another anyway just come on up we're used to feeding a mess of folks uh come up Sounds yonder great. we'll make sure we'll make sure Andrew, you get fed thank if nothing you very else. much for coming on it's been a pleasure and i've learned a lot I, I appreciate you so much for letting me on, and uh, I, I've always appreciated your writing, my friend, and you've been a good friend to me as I, I've tried to learn this writing thing. So publicly, thank you very much for, uh, for being a good Twitter buddy, and I look forward to doing this again.